for this. With heroes in London, New York, Jerusalem, and Lake White Garibaldi, this is China Network News for the weekend being Saturday, August 13, 2005. Hi, I'm your host, Tom Payne. Coming up, we'll hear from controversial Australian historian Keith Winshuttle. And by controversial, I mean not a raving lefty nutjob. He's unhappy at the way history's been politicised. They call all the settler societies, um, South Africa, Australia, New Zealand, Canada, United States, they call them all Herrenvolk democracies. Now, Herrenvolk is the German term for master race. So in using that term, they, they're comparing um, all the settler societies, including Australia, to Nazi Germany. And Rodney Hyde, the leader of New Zealand's classical Liberal Party Act, joins us. New Zealanders think they're at the bottom of the world and that they can avoid world events by being down here. Can they? No, not at all. We'll also have the full of crap report from Lawrence Simon. And as always, Andrew Ian Dodge joins us from London. But first, back by popular demand, Log News. The world trembled in abject fear this week when the brave Afghan Mujahideen released a chilling video of an heroic attack on an empty fort. Well, the gallant Ansar al-Islam certainly looked the part, all dolled up in groovy, radical chic battle dress and balaclavas, with the AK-47s slung in that oh-so-casual, hey baby, I'm hardcore manner, designed to impress the girls. Interestingly enough, the recruiting video, oh, I mean the uh, balanced and uh, sober news coverage on the fair and completely impartial Al-Arabiya station contained something of an innovation. Multicultural Mujahideen. There they were, the sons of the Prophet, hardy and bold and quite unaccustomed to fear, loudly proclaiming the imminent demise of Crusaders, Jews, Americans, and indeed the entire West, all with the usual blood-curdling intensity, but in their own language. Hmm, well, if he's vowing to dip his hands in the blood of the Americans and Jews, I don't see why he's in Afghanistan. Surely the French Foreign Ministry has a few openings. Is it just me, or did that guy sound exactly like one of the terrorist puppets from Team America World Police? Doka Doka, Muhammad Jihad. Well, either way, he sounds like a bit of a muppet. Finally, we have my personal favourite, Sheikh Gaza, Lord of the Khyber. The Muslim world is not your backyard. The Muslim world is not Germany, Japan or South America. The honourable sons and daughters of Islam will not sit down watching you spread your evil and immorality and infidelity to our land. The honourable sons of Islam will not just let you kill our families in Palestine, Afghanistan, Kashmir, the Balkans, Indonesia, the Caucasus and elsewhere. It is time for us to be equals. As you kill us, you will be killed. As you bomb us, you will be bombed. That last voice, by the way, is definitely Australian, not Irish, as uh, Al Arabiya reported. Alert readers at Tim Blair's blog noticed the military training behind the placement of his finger on the trigger guard of his weapon, not the actual trigger, and speculated he might be ex-Australian army. 
That seems to be a leading theory, with several sources fingering our favourite Sheikh Gaza, or Crazy Eyes Guy, as he's been labelled, as former Australian infantryman Matthew Stewart, who saw a dead body in East Timor and apparently went nuts. He since went missing in Afghanistan, and we may have just found him again. So there we go, Al-Qaeda endorsing multiculturalism. Now you too can receive videotape threats to eviscerate your family and demolish your hometown in a fiery apocalypse of righteous doom, but in your own language. And they're reaching out. I think that's so cute. As always, Little Green Football's publicised the video, which is available at memory. I rather like that jihadi music theme, in fact. I think I'll use it for the rest of the show. Any complaints about copyright violations can be made in person to the Anti-Terror Division, New Scotland Yard, London. Bring a toothbrush and an overnight bag. Blogs represent democratised access to and dissemination of information. It's a bit hard to lie to people on a mass scale nowadays, which is one of the reasons communism's gone out of fashion. Case in point, suicide bombing has come to China, but the Chinese government doesn't want anyone to know about it. Who got the latest story out? Chinese bloggers. They reported that a suicide bomber detonated himself on a bus in Fuzhou City in Fujian province at around 2.30pm on August the 8th. Police tried to confiscate the cameras of anyone who took pictures, but apparently they didn't get all of them. Some photos have leaked out to Western blogs who passed the news on, and these include Internet Haganah and the Jawa Report. The Chinese government, realising it can't just shove the event down the memory hole the way it used to be able to do, put out a cover story of astonishing blandness about the perpetrator being a local farmer who was suffering from cancer, he had a grudge against the security forces, blah, 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 bullshit. If that's what the Chinese government is saying, well, who's going to believe it? China is fighting a low-level Islamic insurgency in its far west, and it's trying to keep a lid on news about that. If the suicide bombing was, in fact, a jihadi strike, it means they're now capable of striking the heavily populated Chinese heartland. Not that you'd know anything about that by reading the official state-controlled media. Blogs, emails, and ordinary people with cell phones capable of taking pictures are making it that much harder for even a communist government to hide facts good. Sprung, Vietnam Veterans Against the War spokesman Ward Riley, a card-carrying member of the Plastic Turkey Conspiracist Society, turns out to be, well, not quite a Vietnam veteran. I mean, as such. Not unless Augsburg in Germany is near Da Nang and the Black Forest connects to the Yardrang Valley. Nope, turns out Mr. Riley, who thinks nothing of trying to portray the President as a plastic turkey-wielding fraud, has a few problems of his own in that regard. An alert reader at Tim Blair's blog, JDB, managed to uncover the awful truth. Commenters can uncover interesting facts and publicise them just as well as bloggers. What Riley weasels out of the discovery that he served his time in the Army in Germany by now describing himself as a Vietnam-era veteran. Well, gosh. Well, here's something to consider. I myself was part of the Israel Defense Forces. I've qualified as a parachutist, and for a time, I was based on a hostile border. Impressive, no? And each of those facts is perfectly true. Just not at the same time. I was in the Israeli army for all of five days. It was part of a program to get diaspora Jewish youth to think about moving to Israel. It was like Boy Scouts, only with artillery support, which was cool, I admit. I did do a parachute training course back home in New Zealand years later, and I was on the Jordanian border because I happened to be living and working on Kibbutz Yehel down in the Aravar at the time, well after I did my Israeli army course. 
I dare say any of you could come up with a few true facts about your life and string them together and come up with a story that makes you sound like Sergeant Rock holding off the Chinese hordes at Chosen Reservoir. In fact, that sounds like a bit of fun. Let's do it. Come up with a bunch of facts, true facts about yourself, string them together in a highly flattering and yet totally untrue and deceptive manner, and email them to me at pacificjournalist at gmail.com. I'll read them out on the next podcast. Are the left crazy? Well, I think the answer is essentially yes. And earlier I posted something on silent running backing that assessment up. It seemed only fair. Anyone remember that university study which allegedly proved that conservatism was a mental disorder? Here's what that particular paper, delivered only weeks after September 11th, had to say about the psychological roots of a leftist's response to being attacked. He will criticise and may even blame his own nation. He'll develop a guilt-ridden or anxious desire to solve the problem by being nicer to those who might hate or dislike his country. He will elaborate various disaster scenarios which he fears will occur if force is used aggressively. Usually, the imagined disaster is a variation of it will only make them hate us even more, or a feared dramatic escalation of violence which he will not have the will or the strength, so the liberal believes, to handle. He fears that his nation and its leaders, especially if they're not liberals, are stupid and clumsy, and he may insist on replacing a directly aggressive defence with half-hearted responses which are actually clumsy and ineffective. Well, this attempt to suggest that some of the people on the other side of the fence have a lot more going on in their heads than a rational response met with some fairly deranged responses. One commenter, the somewhat inappropriately named Mad Matt, responded, Yes, I can see how reason and logic would offend somebody like you. God forbid anybody look at the root causes and target them, as opposed to your approach of lashing out blindly and killing everyone different from yourself. Well, that was pretty convincing, actually. So I had him killed. There have been some attempts by the left to cast doubt on the academic credentials of the study's author, and the background to that is covered by Neo Neocon, she of the Magritte-inspired apple in front of the face. Well, that's it for blog news, but now joining us from London is Andrew Ian Dodge. Good afternoon. This is Andrew Ian Dodge coming to you from London. On the day that Robert and Cook, one of the left wing's firebrands and, one could argue, fairly well-spoken, if caddish, characters was laid to rest. Now, one would think that this little event wouldn't exactly be that controversial. However, it has been. And of all characters, the controversy comes from someone who reports on horse racing, which was, of course, one of Robin Cook's favorite pastimes, besides chasing skirt. Mr. McCready uh, launched an absolute blazing attack on Blair for not bothering to come back to London to go to the funeral. And uh, it's, it's getting quite a bit of airplay. And uh, more people than not are actually agreeing with the comments. On the front of uh, neo-fascist, uh, neo-Nazi Islamists, we have some interesting developments. The Blair government seems to have finally gotten fed up and are booting some of these guys out of the country and or not letting them back in. There are ten initial on the, initially on the list. One of them is Omar Bakri Mohammed. Now, this bloke is a terrorist glorifier. I mean, he's, he's a really hateful figure. Of course, one of his um, buddies was on Newsnight last night, Anjem Chowdhury, and he defended the line taken by Omar Bakhtri, if you're born in a barn, it doesn't make you a horse. It basically means that they're talking about British Muslims not being British, but being Muslims first. All the security services have to 
seem to do these days is, is just watch Newsnight, because inevitably there will be some uh, Muslim fanatic saying something stupid. It seems to happen every other day these days. Anyway, Mr. Bakri, I don't know if all of you know about it, was on the dole, because of course he doesn't believe in doing anything to help the British state, which he believes is, shouldn't exist. So he's on the dole. Uh, they've recently bought him an SUV. He's set to have an operation. Uh, his entire large brood is here, leeching off the taxpayer, yet he still thinks uh, British people should be blown to bits. Even the Blair government has finally figured out this is a bit much, and his holiday in Lebanon is going to be rather permanent. In fact, it looks like he may end up in Syria, because the Syrians want him. Of course, on the other hand, we have uh, Hazel Blair's the ginger winger running around, bleating on about these agreements of understanding that the British government are trying to sign with countries like Syria and Lebanon to assure us that none of these nasty characters will be tortured or executed. It's a rather interesting little play there. On the one hand, Blair is being harsh, and, and so is the Home Secretary, Charles Clark, about kicking his people out. Some are in jail for hate-mongering. And on the other hand, you have Hazel Blears running around saying, oh, but we want to make sure they're all right when they go back to their home countries. What is interesting, I have to say, in the, in the last week or so, is that the bleeding from the Muslims has dr almost dropped off. And secondly, the British public is actually grasping what's going on. I think popular support for multiculturalism is really dying right now. And there are some extremely good criticisms of, of, of multiculturalism, echoing sort of the sentiments which I've, I've used of self-ghettoization. One of the reasons we can't, and the security services can't get to these people, of course, is because you have all these other groups and Pakistanis living in these tight-knit communities where they can't get out of. And they're desperately scared to report on, on these um, Islamists. And then you have the mullahs running around saying, I will not report a fellow Muslim uh, to a kafir. It's no wonder they have problems. All in all, if the rhetoric holds up with action, it's been a very good week for uh, the British people in the war against terrorism. I hope that continues in this vein. The only other bit of news I can think of is that Growing Old Disgracefully is rehearsing for the trip to the studio on the 20th of um, August, and we're getting some interesting interest from our song Cry Freedom. Uh, we've done a bit of press this week, and we're going to a gig this evening, and then tomorrow it's off to work. We've got to get everything nailed by the time we get to the studio on the 20th, as we only have a day. This is Andrew Ian Dodge of andreandodge.com, libertycadre.net, and of course, disgracefulmusic.com, signing off. Thanks, Andrew. Well, New Zealand goes to the polls on September the 17th, and electioneering is now well underway. The polls are jumping around all over the place, and it's extremely difficult to call. The country's classical Liberal Party Act currently has 80 MPs, and would be the logical coalition partner for the centre-right National Party. But for some bizarre reason best known to themselves, National's proven unable to grasp the realities of proportional representation, and is trying to prevent Act from getting into Parliament. Back in the old country, I believe this used to be called pissing in the soup. Joining us from Wellington is Act leader Rodney Hyde, who thinks blogs aren't quite the political magic bullet for the right that some people may have thought. Well, I don't think they're going to have as big a role as, as, as what we'd thought. I think it's sort of people that like blogs talking to people that like blogs. And so there's a few thousand people that are logging in, including the journalists. And I think where they're going to have an impact is... Um, if the media get it too wrong, then the blogs will whack them, but we haven't seen that yet. Are we seeing any of the whole fact-checking thing that's um, happened in America happening in New Zealand with blogs? No, and I think one of the difficulties that we have with uh, blogs in New Zealand is that they sort of have their political colours uh, nailed to their masts. 
sure, we, we've had blogs in the states that were sort of Republican, but they concentrated on analysis. And uh, what's happening here is the blogs have really become part of the spin machine of, of political parties rather than sort of um, fact-checking of the mainstream media. Your party act as a classical liberal party. It's regarded as being to the right of the National Party, which is the main centre-right party. Do you get any blogs in New Zealand supporting you? Yeah, no, no. We get, I get good support, and the ACT Party gets good support on the blogs, and particularly with the, the commentators, uh, simply because people that are techie tend to be um, more libertarian in their thinking than uh, working on a central control and command model. So, no, we get good support on the, in the blogosphere. Which particular blogs are you uh, thinking of? Oh, uh, Silent Running, uh, Sir Humphreys, um, New Zealand Pundit, uh, they're the ones that have been good to, good to me, and then of course my own. Do you read them for information, for talking points, uh, suggestions, or do you just uh, read them and think, thank God there's someone out there who supports me? Oh, I read them for sheer enjoyment. Um, I just find it interesting, I know the bloggers mostly, and I just find it interesting their take on the issues, and I do gain an insight, I mean they're clever people that are writing them, and so I do get an insight on what's happening, and I, I read them, actually, because I enjoy it. I enjoy reading them more than I enjoy reading the papers. Do things mentioned on blogs ever find their way into your speeches? And oh, very much. Um, in fact, there's been analysis on blogs that I've read just before going down to Parliament and used it at question time. Does anyone else do that in Parliament? Not that I'm aware of. Um, uh, for some reason, uh, politics is sort of a very hidebound, institutionalised, sort of place and you know when I turned up they were sort of struggling with PCs let alone you know the internet and and um, blogs so sure some MPs are into it a bit but I think the, the place is, is, as a whole is very institutionalised and sort of fuddy-duddy you know how sort of law firms are like that I think parliament's like that and so um, I don't think uh, parliament gets into the internet as much as it should. What's going to happen in the election. Well, everyone always asks a politician, what do, what do you think is going to happen? And they always say, of course, we're going to swoop to victory on a massive tidal weight of public support. But mm. what's really happening in New Zealand politics? New Zealand is a little bit out there on left field as far as the Anglospheric countries, isn't it, at the moment? Left field is correct. And um, so the voters are left-leaning in New Zealand. And the difficulty that we have, we have a, a proportional representation system. And there are sort of the left have more options with political parties, which makes it in a way easier for them uh, to cobble together a coalition to govern. And while there's been a swing against the left in New Zealand, uh, it'll, it, it remains to be seen whether that's enough. What we can say about it is that there's going to be an election on September the 17th, that the polls, the public polls are very, very fluid, and it's all on. You know, there could be a, a big swing, one way or the other, and there could be some major fallout in the smaller parties. We simply do not know, and it's not just me saying that. Respected commentators uh, who normally have been able to call it um, are holding their judgment, and so it's all on this election. It's a very exciting election to be involved in in New Zealand. In other English-speaking countries, um, the incumbents have done well. Um, Howard in Australia, uh, Bush in the United States, and Blair in the UK, these are all supporters of the war on terror. And you've even got um, Tony Blair, who's, you know, although he's leader of the Labour Party, uh, they've introduced some very, very tough measures in the wake of the London bombings. They're even talking about deporting people and... Uh, 
taking action against uh, uh, foreign-born people, even, even perhaps introducing treason charges. These are all very tough things. But in New Zealand, it seems to me that the, the whole public dialogue is in the opposite direction. Why oh, is that? Totally in the opposite direction. I mean, um, the Labour government, of course, has stayed right out of the war on terror, and they're proud about it. Well, you'd expect that. They're, you know, it's a left-wing government. But the major party in opposition, the National Party, uh, they have completely buckled and uh, always trying to prove that they would out-pacify the, the Labour Party. And um, it's only really been ACT standing up for defence and indeed supporting the Western uh, Coalition. So why isn't ACT getting more support? Well, um, I think that reflects public sentiment. New Zealanders think they're at the bottom of the world and that they can avoid world events by being down here. Can they? No, not at all. New Zealand, is, New Zealand is a country that trades with the rest of the world. We have trade interests right around the globe. We have New Zealanders right around the world, so our interests span the globe. And yet we're sort of sitting saying, oh, well, no one's going to invade New Zealand. And, um, we, of course, we can't avoid it, and particularly in a modern era with global terrorism. What are you hearing from New Zealanders overseas about the New Zealand election? New Zealanders overseas have a much better appreciation of New Zealand circumstances, economically, politically, and in terms of foreign policy. And I think a big reason for that is that they have the benefit of distance, and they've not been conditioned by the media and sort of what you might call internal public opinion. So they have a much tougher view of the circumstance that New Zealand, uh, New Zealand finds itself in than New Zealanders living in New Zealand. If ACT is able to get into Parliament and... Uh, What's this if? <laughs> I'm sorry, Rodney. <laughs> assuming ACT gets What's this assuming? Let when? Me, let me rephrase the whole thing, shall we? After the election, assuming there's going to be a centre-right coalition, yourself and, and, and National, what policies would ACT want to make a priority for such a coalition government in New Zealand? How would you, would you try and reverse everything that's happened in the last six years? No, we wouldn't be able to reverse everything that's happened in the last six years. I mean, a lot of it is time gone by. But the priorities would be tax cuts. Uh, amazingly, in New Zealand, that's a very, very popular policy. And uh, Helen Clark and the Labour Party in a minority for opposing tax cuts. So there would be one that would be high priority. We've got a big problem in law and order. Uh, we need more police and we need tougher sentencing. So that would be a priority, and a third priority would be welfare reform to stop the abuse. And uh, what we'd like to see is some proper standards in education and school choice. What about foreign affairs and the war on terror? Well, that's going to be tougher. The act position is, is that we would um, boost defence and we would enable nuclear-powered warships to visit New Zealand. But that is very, very controversial for New Zealand, and it's hard to see uh, the National Party going along with it. What they have said is that they wouldn't allow nuclear-powered war warships to visit unless there was a referendum, and they've even ruled out having a referendum. So we'd push for a referendum on the issue. You're one of the few politicians with his own blog. Assuming you became a cabinet minister uh, in, a, in a national act coalition government, would you still keep up your blog? Oh, I'd love to. I, I'm pretty judicious with what I put on the blog, so I don't sort of blow... I mean, it's quite hard when you're a politician because you often know things and have insights that... Um, you could easily put on a blog. I tend to check myself and hold back uh, and be pretty careful. But I just enjoy blogging. I just think it's a, a wonderful medium 
for communication, and I'd, I couldn't imagine stopping the blog. That was Rodney Hyde, leader of New Zealand's ACT Party, the only party leader to also be an active blogger. Now it's time for the Full of Crap Report. Hi, this is Lawrence Simon, and welcome to the Full of Crap Report here on Shire Network News. As you've heard a few times before, I have a favorite target. Not them. Famous idiots who stick their feet in their mouths, wait a day or two, and then say they're apologizing when all they're doing is justifying their stupidity. This week, it's Deo singer Harry Belafonte. In the past, he called Colin Powell a house slave. Well, this time he tried to slam Bush's minority cabinet members again in a voting rights protest march. But, hold on, let's check CNS News. Hitler had a lot of Jews high up in the hierarchy of the Third Reich. Color does not necessarily denote quality, content, or value. Well, Harry, tell us what you really think. It took a few days to Harry realize he screwed up big time. So he was ready to apologize. Sort of. Back to CNS News and Jerusalem Post. I do regret the sentence was not structured more accurately, Belafonte told the Post in a telephone interview from the United States. I, too, agree that the Jews weren't high up. Well, that clears it all up. Thank you, Harry. Um, Harry? Harry? Oh, no. He goes on. However, that the Jews did have a role, some did, in the demise and brutal treatment of the Jewish people. He pointed to the book Hitler's Jewish Soldiers as just one example supporting his statement. The book, recently profiled in the Post, tells of part Jewish soldiers who fought for the Wehrmacht. Was it rampant? Absolutely not, he said, but these things happen and people are not exempt from their behavior. Damn it, Harry, when you dig yourself in a hole, stop digging. So how about that book Harry pointed out? Well, let's check the Jerusalem Post again. The book's author, Brian Mark Rigg, repudiated Belafonte's attempt to use his book as the basis for his controversial statements. And I'm going to cut it down here a bit. Uh, Belafonte continues to distort history. My book shows that a number of people of partial Jewish ancestry served in the German military, but they did not consider themselves Jews. In fact, many of them were later dismissed from the German military and sent to forced labor camps. Uh, Belafonte should take the trouble to read the books he cites before claiming they support him. My book doesn't support him, Rig added. Damn it, Harry. Okay, so we've learned Harry Belafonte has the reading comprehension skills of a six-year-old. Or, more likely, he's just reading into it what he wants to read into it. Now that he's done proving himself a twit, well... He does what any twit does. He rolls out the character witness to prove himself even more of a twit. Let's see here. I've always been supportive of the right of Israel as a state, and I've always fought against anti-Semitism, even in my own community. He pointed out that his wife is Russian Jewish. They didn't meet in a synagogue or a church, he laughed, but at the theater, which by Jewish law makes his four children Jewish. <sighs> She really rubbed off on you, genius. He spent some time in the theater in Tel Aviv and on one occasion sang Hava Nagila from Moshe Dayan and his troops. Oh, you know, this is about as genuine as a black-hating racist whipping out some of the old, oh, some of my best friends are black, defense for their racist remarks. Or as genuine as U.N. Secretary General Kofi Annan's whining that he's compassionate to the Israeli cause, because he married the daughter of a famous Holocaust survivor? Oh, what a load of crap. A crackpot is a crackpot, no matter who he's related to. 
Just stick to singing, Harry, because if it isn't music coming out of your mouth, it's just more crap. Thanks, Lawrence. Here in Australia, where I live, academia is as much a battleground of ideology as it is in the United States. Leading the charge against left-wing political correctness and what he sees as an overt politicisation of scholarship is Australian historian Keith Winchuttle. Every time he publishes a book questioning some previously untouchable leftist shibboleth, the academic establishment practically melts down in its attempts to discredit him. It's very politicised at the moment. Um, At the moment, it has been for 30 years. Uh, I mean, the academic left took over history, certainly Australian history, in, in this country, um, they've been gradually taken over the, the past 30 years. Now they rule supreme, uh, and they are trying to stand on the kind of imprimatur of the um, reputation of academic scholarship, when in fact um, the majority of Australian historians are, are political ideologues. Um, and so when someone like me comes along and says, um, firstly, you, you, what you say is political uh, rather than scholarly, and secondly, um, large chunks of it are untrue, uh, invented or fabricated, then... Um, you get naturally get a defensive reaction. <laughs> it, uh, I'm, I'm not surprised by it at all. They certainly don't seem to like you, do they? Uh, no, I'd, I'd say it'd be fair to say that a lot of people, a lot of historians, hate my guts. Um, and that's, uh, but that's not. Um, I mean, that's not my tactic. I mean, I, I um, use their own quotations to show that um, they are politicised. I mean, Henry Reynolds, uh, for instance, the historian of Aboriginal Australia, says that um, history is is inescapably political, and uh, he says history can be. You put to use for utilitarian political purposes. Now, that's not me accusing him of being a political. It's, it's him sort of reveling in the um, in the ability to, to be as political as he likes. Well, let's get down to cases. Give, give us some examples of the politicisation of. Let's start with your area, Australian history. Well, I, um, I, I've just written a book on the White Australia policy, and um, the consensus among academic historians is that. The White Australia Policy, which was a series, it's, there was no such thing ever called the White Australia Policy. That's, that's a kind of general description for it. But it was a series of restrictions on um, on Ch- mainly Chinese and Melanesian uh, labourers to come into Australia, starting in the 1850s and culminating in 1901 in uh, Immigration Restriction Bill. And then um, it was gradually wound down. In fact, it was wound down almost immediately for people from Japan and India. It was never a pure white, white policy at all. And we finally got rid of immigration restrictions for non-Europeans in the uh, 1960s. Um, but um, the White Australia policy, according to our academic historians, makes Australia the political equivalent of South Africa under apartheid. Um, and they call Australia, so they call all the settler societies, um, South Africa, Australia, New Zealand, Canada, United States, they call them all Herrenvolk democracies. Now, Herrenvolk is the German term for master race. So in using that term, they... They're comparing um, all the settler societies, including Australia, to Nazi Germany. And um, it, it, that is so far-fetched. I mean, the, the comparison with South Africa under apartheid, which, of course, wasn't done by the British South Africans. It was an Africana measure, which most of the um, British liberals, certainly in the parliament, opposed. Um, Australia's always been a British liberal democratic country, and um, to compare it with um, Nazi Germany or South Africa under apartheid is... Um, is sort of so crazy that, it, that it's astonishing that um, people have, have been doing it and getting away with it for 30 years, and they've persuaded each other that it's true. Uh, all they ever do is look at each other's um, own statements about it, and they never actually um, investigate the primary sources. And, and I've just done that. I mean, I've, I've written a you know, long book, but in one of the chapters there's a, a discussion of the Immigration Restriction Bill in 1901, which was the, the big policy 
um, sort of manifestation of, of these ideas. And um, the historians say that no one um, objected to um, no. There's no not one race, not one objection uh, on the basis of racial prejudice. Well, I found you know 20 or 30 objections on the basis of racial prejudice. Um, I found, in fact, the majority of, um, of parliamentarians did not vote on that ground. Most most of them voted on, on the basis that um, Chinese and Melanesian labourers who were being imported into Australia at a fraction of the market rates that were paid to people in the country. Um, it was a measure to um, prevent um, cheap, exploited labour from coming into the country. Coolie labour, which is a technical term, for people who are paid, say, £6 a year when the going rate for um, a labourer in Australia was £6 a fortnight. For the benefit of our listeners who aren't from Australia, could you explain to us what, what the, the black armband view of history is in Australia? Well, the black armband view is, is, is a brilliant term coined by, um, by Geoffrey Blaney. Um, um, it, 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 in football matches, if, if, there's, uh, if you're commemorating the death of somebody, um, then... Um, um, the captain and the players of the, of the team who was who are you know going through the ceremony, they wear a black armband um, while they're playing the game, and uh, it's a, it's just a little minor tradition, um, but it's it sort of puts it says we're sort of um, hanging our heads and, and 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 thinking seriously about the dead. Now to, call, to apply that to history um, uh, is is a very telling uh, metaphor because um, what. We're supposed to do what us, um, uh, you know, people who are born and bred in Australia are supposed to do is hang our heads in shame at the the terrible history that we uh, have inherited. We're supposed to have um, not only wanted to keep the place white and pure like Nazi Germany, but we're also supposed to have committed the Holocaust against the Aborigines. And uh, I've also written a book about the fabrication of Aboriginal history, which, um, in fact, is the first volume of a, of a long series that I'm, I'm engaged in doing. Um, which shows that most of the evidence for that claim is also um, is also false. I mean, there's nothing like a Holocaust. There was, cer- there was certainly a series of incidents where Aborigines shot whites and, and or killed whites, and whites shot Aborigines. Um, but there was nothing systematic about it, um, and and um, and the numbers were very small. In fact, the, Australia is the site of the um, the least spilling of Indigenous blood of, in all the, um, of European expansions in the last 500 years. Yet we have the National Museum of Australia, opened in 2001, um, built on the advice of, of um, academic historians, which is shaped um, in the, it's got the same motive, um, a lightning bolt striking the ground, as the Jewish Museum in, in uh, Berlin, which is designed to commemorate the Holocaust. So um, this stuff has gone a long way into Australian culture on the back of some very bad advice from, um, and very politicised advice from Australian historians. When the academic left take their um, preconceptions out into the marketplace of ideas, they often get quite shocked and indeed angry when people don't automatically roll over and play dead for them. I'm thinking in particular of, say, Manning Clark's famous cleansing fire remark. They're a bit insular, aren't they? Um, very much so. And, and it, it's, they're the same as, as the kind of intellectual elite um, in, in most Western countries these days, certainly in the United States, where you have um, people who... Um, who live a kind of academic life locked up within their own world, um, who in fact despise the, um, m- much of the rest of their population. Uh, they certainly despise people who live in suburbs and who, um, and who vote conservative. Uh, it, it's, we have very much the, um, the sort of red state and blue state division in Australia, which is in the United States. Um, um, 
the academic elite um, regard themselves as superior intellects and superior beings and they know what's good for the rest of us. Um, fortunately, we have a sort of um, um, a public wisdom um, that um, rejects their views and that's, that's coming out very clearly now in, um, in the response to um, terrorism in the Middle East where, where um, you've got um, uh, academic historians, um, journal, a lot of journalists trying to sort of justify what these jihadists are doing where people everybody in the in the everybody else in the, it knows from their gut instincts that um they are evil people who have to be defeated and, and and no excuses for them should be made at all that was australian historian keith winshuttle in fact he was so interesting that the interview went on for a lot longer than that and i'll bring you part two next week but right now that's it for shine network news the official podcast of silentrunning.tv i'm tom payne and until next week May your God go with you.